I want to call your attention this afternoon to the book of Romans, chapter 13. It has been about four months since we finished looking at chapter 12, and I've put it off as long as I can. And it's time to take the plunge into chapter 13. Let me say this, I do approach this chapter with unusual trepidation because I know that I don't have all the answers. I had them at one time. (laughs) I don't have them anymore. It was nice. But perhaps we can make uh, some small contribution in at least asking the right questions. Romans 13, and let's read verses 1 through 7. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, Honor to whom honor. And may God bless the reading of this portion of his word to our hearts today. We are beginning here a new chapter in the letter to the Romans. It's uh, certainly a good place for a chapter division. We know that in the, uh, the way that Paul wrote it, there were no chapter divisions. It's all one big long letter, but this is a good place for a chapter division. This is an especially challenging portion of Scripture to me. More challenging now than ever before. And that is so in part because government at all levels 
has a presence in our life and society today more than ever before. Certainly more than the Roman government had in the life of its citizens in the first century. You have to think long and hard to come up with any part of life that is not under some government regulation today. They tell us how many gallons per flush. I mean, is there, can you think of any part of your life that is not regulated by the government? Overregulated, perhaps, is, is the right word. Furthermore, this passage is especially challenging today because about three years ago, governments across the globe, including governments here at, in our nation and in states and cities, shut down churches as non-essential businesses or at least limited their activities drastically. Time has shown what some figured out early on, and that is under the disguise of public health, some very evil agendas were at work and still are. And I doubt that we have seen the last of that method As I said, a few years ago, Romans 13 was fairly easy to apply to our life. But new circumstances have forced us to re-examine this portion and to re-examine how extensive the duty of obedience is and how or what limits biblically are upon the subjection that is taught to us here in Romans 13. Before we just jump into verse 1, let us consider some preliminary thoughts and some introductory considerations that will help uh, put this passage in some framework. And that's all we hope to do here this afternoon is just these introductory thoughts. First of all, this passage of Scripture, Romans 13, 1 through 7, is undoubtedly for us today. Just as certainly as chapter 12 is for us today, chapter 13 is for us today. We cannot say, well, this was just for the saints at Rome. This is relevant to us. 
there are principles and duties here for all believers for all time. Secondly, we should see some connection here between what we saw in chapter 12 and what is before us here in these verses. Some have taken the view that this is so out of touch with where chapter 12, verse 21 ended, that there's no connection whatsoever. And I would just beg to differ. In chapter 12, we saw Christian duties with regard to various aspects of life and various relationships and various circumstances. What our conduct and attitude should be in general and then with regard to circumstances and other people both in and out of church and our reaction to evil. The evil in this world that is addressed at the end of chapter 12 certainly flows well into chapter 13. There is much evil, and the very term is used here a time or two in these verses. There does seem to be something of a taking up in 13.8 where 12.21 left off. Verse 8 says, Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. That certainly is in keeping with uh, even loving your enemy and overcoming evil with good and so on. What we have in these seven verses then is a unit that addresses the Christian's duty toward civil government. And we shouldn't think that that would be out of the subject or off the subject in this whole context. I think it's also worth noting that there is some emphasis there in the last half of chapter 12 upon Non-retaliation, verse 14, bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not, as well as verse 17, recompense to no man evil for evil. Verse 19, dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, that is, God's wrath. Perhaps these Roman Christians were questioning the legitimacy of civil government to take revenge. And certainly that is addressed here. Chapter 12 is speaking of personal revenge, on the other hand. So that explanation would be expected from the hand of the inspired apostle. 
But perhaps even more significantly is this. Perhaps some in Rome, believers in Rome, questioned the obligation of believers to civil government altogether. After all, the great emphasis throughout the Christian testimony is that we are now citizens of a heavenly kingdom. What authority then does earthly power have over us? We know from the book of Acts that the accusation made by the both the Jewish authorities, uh, in particular there in the book of Acts, and then later on in church history, the Roman authorities, the accusation against them was sedition, disloyalty to the earthly kingdom. That accusation was not true, but you can see how the loyalty of the believers to another king, Jesus, might turn into that kind of accusation on the parts of those who are willing to uh, spin things in their favor. Furthermore, The king, Jesus, had been falsely accused of insurrection himself by the Jewish authorities. And they, of course, brought that before the Roman authorities. So there's much to consider here. We can see a variety of reasons why Paul, on a, a human level, would see the need to address this subject in this part of the letter. Now, let me just add some further historical background that provide various facets that are all uh, interesting and helpful. The Jews had a history of being considered as ungovernable hotheads themselves, the the Jews as a whole. And we see this back into the Old Testament. At the uh, end of the Old Testament time frame, that is uh, written history about 400 years before Christ, when the Jews returned from, from captivity and were rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, the accusation that their local enemies made to the Persian king Artaxerxes was this. This city is a rebellious city and hurtful unto kings and provinces and that they have moved sedition within the same of old time for which cause this city was destroyed. That's Ezra chapter 4. In other words, the the local enemies there that were trying to hinder any progress make this strong accusation 
to the, the monarch of the world at that time, Artaxerxes, these people have always been rebels. They've never done anything but cause trouble. And you're letting them build the city again? This has got to stop. In uh, Daniel chapter 3, actually winding the clock back uh, several years, the accusation against the three Hebrews in Daniel chapter 3 was this. There are certain Jews. This is, this is what the, the princes said to Nebuchadnezzar the king. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. They just have rebellion in their DNA. There's something wrong with these people. You know, that's the the way that Gentile nations looked at the Jews. When the Romans came along and uh, were ruling in Palestine... They did all they could to accommodate the Jews, to keep them pacified and keep them from rebelling, though they could have come and crushed them at any time, and they did in A.D. 70. Until then, they, were, they handled them with care, we might say. They granted them much religious freedom, The Jews were not required to worship Caesar like others in the empire were. They were allowed to maintain their religion, their temple, their priesthood, their offerings. The Romans even honored the refusal of the Jews to have any idols in their Land and in their territory. The, I mean, Paul goes to Athens and there's idols everywhere. Not so in Jerusalem. Thanks to the, the Romans accommodating the religion of the Jews. The only exception to that was the Romans did circulate their coins that had images of Caesar on them. And even that was a, a, a terrible grief to the Jewish population. And on that subject, paying tax to a foreign government was particularly grievous to the Jews. There is a revolt mentioned in the book of Acts, and just one of many that occurred historically. But uh, in uh, Acts 5, there's this account of a man named Judas from Galilee rose up in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him. Now, this is not Judas's chariot. This is another Judas, a very common name. You recall that it was a taxation as well as a census that sent Joseph and Mary from Galilee in the north, from Nazareth, down to Judea and Bethlehem 
at the time that our Lord Jesus was born. And I'm sure there were many who did not want to make a journey like that and did not want to be numbered and counted and did not want to pay the tax. This man mentioned in Acts 5 is Judas of Galilee, by the way. The Galileans were especially infamous for being easily provoked, being hotheads, as we say, trigger-happy, difficult to govern. Pontius Pilate learned that, and he would grant them a long leash for a while, and then in a fit of rage he would do what we read in Acts chapter, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 13. He would kill them even while they are offering their sacrifices. There were zealots not only in Galilee, but especially in Galilee, who refused to pay tax to Caesar. And just like this Judas who's mentioned here, they were willing to resort to all kinds of methods and terrorism against Rome. And uh, historians tell us that they not only would uh, carry out raids uh, against Rome, against the, the leaders of Rome in their area, they would even resort to violence against fellow Jews who paid taxes to Caesar. Now, these are the extreme, you know, the, the zealots, as they're called. They would do things like burn their houses down. In other words, don't anybody pay tax to Caesar. And of course, Jesus was known as Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus from Galilee. Perhaps that connection caused the Romans, the Roman Empire and, and its representatives to carefully watch the Christians. Is this just another group of of hot-headed tax evaders from Galilee? And so Paul has that reason to address this subject, of course. It's also interesting to note that the Jews in Jesus' day boasted in never having submitted to Caesar. We read that in John chapter 8 and we think, how could they say that with a straight face? But that's what they said. John 8, Jesus says to the Jews which believed on him, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And that word free Uh, struck a chord with some of these people who were listening. They said unto him, We be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou ye shall be made free? Well, I think the best explanation is this. 
they could say we were never in bondage to any man, even though they're under the, the thumb of Rome in, presently. Because their submission was only outward and not inward. Inwardly, they were unconquered and unconquerable. Perhaps some who had been saved out of the Jewish nation carried over some of this thinking. This was some of their baggage and and remaining sin that they struggled with. And so Paul might need to address that. It's also interesting that even though the Jews refused to submit to Caesar in their own minds, they played this card against Jesus that he was disloyal. How quickly they could jump to the other side if they thought it was in their favor and it would help them to get Christ crucified and out of the way. They began to accuse him, it says, before Pontius Pilate and said, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. Oh, they hated to pay tribute to Caesar. Many of them refused to do so. But now they're accusing Christ of of what they're guilty of. Does that sound familiar? Forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. In John's account, just a little bit later, that same night, it says that Pilate sought to release Jesus, but the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Oh, they're, they're, they're so concerned about Caesar now, aren't they? They want to be known as Caesar's friends. And they want Pilate to know that they're Caesar's friends and that Jesus is not. Oh, what duplicity and hypocrisy. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. And they cried out, it says, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered. We have no king but Caesar. Wow. They would deny what was most dear to themselves in order to see Christ led to crucifixion. Not only was Christ falsely accused of disloyalty, but the apostles went on to receive the same accusations. They were accused of insurrection both against the Jewish authorities and against the Roman authorities. Let me just give you some instances of that in the book of Acts very quickly here. Uh, At the trial of Stephen, it says they uh, not only did they bring in these false witnesses, 
They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. So here are the Jews accusing the Christians of being uh, bad citizens, we might say. Then later in uh, Acts chapter 17, this is in Thessalonica. These all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. I mean, this, this tactic worked to get Christ crucified, and they're using it again to persecute the disciples of Christ. Then in uh, chapter 21, here's Paul in Jerusalem for the last time, you know, and he's there carefully following the restrictions for who can be in the temple court and so on and which court. And this false accusation was raised against him. This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place and further brought Greeks also into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. He's totally lawless. Of course, that was a false accusation. The Greeks that were with Paul had not been in the temple or in that court. The the Romans in charge there that day were so confused with these accusations against Paul that one of the Roman soldiers, guards, asks Paul, Art not thou that Egyptian which before these days madest an uproar and ledest out into the wilderness 4,000 men that were murderers? Beloved, prepare to be accused of all kinds of silliness and and falsehood. And finally, when Paul is giving a defense here in Acts chapter 24, the accusations uh, that were brought against him were these. We have found this man a pest, a pestilent fellow. And a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world. And a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Those those violent Galileans who also hath gone about to profane the temple. And so on. So I'm reading those passages to say this. The apostles were falsely accused just like Jesus himself was, and we shouldn't expect anything better. And we need to understand what our duty is according to the word of God. And that's where Romans 13 is the most detailed portion of Scripture that deals with this subject. 
It is interesting, by the way, that in a couple of hundred years after the book of Acts, the charge that was brought against the Christians was not insurrection per se, not outward revolution and revolt, but rather isolation, non-participation in government affairs and in military service. The accusation was that they are antisocial people. They don't contribute anything to the welfare of the realm. And so you see how if one accusation doesn't stick, the enemies of the truth will find another one. The Christians were minding their own business in many things and were persecuted for that. What are they doing in those secret meetings they have? You know, They're plotting against the government. <clears throat> now, a couple of other insights here. We know from Acts chapter 18 that the Jews had been expelled from Rome by Caesar Claudius. Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, it says. Evidently, that order expired and they were allowed to return. No doubt many of the Jews who returned were resentful for having been forced to leave. And you can imagine something of an anti-Caesar sentiment that some of them would secretly hold. And again, from some of these same people came believers, no doubt. And perhaps some of of that sentiment remained in believers to some degree and needed to be addressed by Paul here. Also, Rome was the seat of government of the empire. Rome was the capital city. And no doubt the authorities in Rome were especially on the lookout against any disloyal subjects right under their nose, right in the city of Rome. And the believers who were there must certainly be especially careful not to give any hint of insubordination. And so these are some things to consider as we approach Romans 13. There's a lot of historical uh, facets that, that bear upon a passage like this. And so no doubt Paul had various reasons to take up this subject at this point. We might look at it in a way as being the outworking of what he said in chapter 12, verse 18, where he says, live peaceably with all men. This is a specific context in which to live peaceably. Now, one more thing to consider that I think needs to be kept in mind and will 
say more about this as we work through these verses, but the kingdom established by Christ is a spiritual kingdom. It is not a carnal kingdom. Jesus said to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It can be all around him and he'll miss it because it's a it's an invisible kingdom. It's not a carnal kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. <clears throat> it's incomprehensible to natural man. On one occasion, when some of these, oh my, can we call them Jewish nationalists, <laughs> came to Jesus and wanted him to be their king, they wanted to put a crown on his head, their stomachs were full from a good feeding the day before, what did Jesus do when he perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king? He departed again into a mountain himself alone. He was not interested in that kind of kingdom. There's an occasion in the Gospel of Luke where a man brings a, a civil case to Christ for him to render judgment on and adjudicate. What did Jesus do? One of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he turns the tables and warns the man against covetousness. That's Christ's kingdom. And when the Pharisees demanded of him when the kingdom of God would come, here was his answer. The kingdom of God. I mean, they at least understood that he was claiming kingship. And so when is the kingdom going to come? The kingdom of God, he said, cometh not with observation. It's not observable. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. It is presently in your midst. But as he said to Nicodemus, they didn't have eyes to see it. And finally, Jesus says to Pilate, when he is pressed by Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from Hence, and I should have read earlier before that passage this, which was just a little bit earlier in, in the chronology. When they came to arrest Jesus in the garden, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priests and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. These, these passages show us unmistakably the kind of kingdom that Jesus established and the kind of king that he is. 
in this present time. Paul goes on and tells the Corinthians that they ought to avoid earthly courts as much as they can. 1 Corinthians 6. He doesn't tell them, now you need to correct these courts and, and influence the judge. He says, avoid him all you can. <clears throat> and I say all that to say this. The New Testament church operates on principles different than Old Testament Israel in many respects. And in this, uh, in particular for us here today, it, it, the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom as opposed to an earthly or carnal kingdom. That leads us then to this conclusion. Believers hold dual citizenship. One is in an earthly kingdom. The other is in a spiritual kingdom. And our spiritual citizenship has claim upon our highest loyalty. We are citizens of a heavenly realm first and foremost. Paul writes to the Philippians these very words, our citizenship, the word in our old King James is conversation. You might use the word commonwealth, is in heaven. And that leads Peter to say in his letter, we are strangers and pilgrims on this earth. And the time that we are here presently is a sojourning time, he says. Our mind is set on things above, not on things on the earth. It shouldn't surprise us that Paul, again, says to the Corinthians that the jurisdiction that the church has is over its own members, and not over those on the outside. What do we have to do to judge those that are without? Nothing. God will judge them. But we must judge those that are within. On the other hand, we are citizens of an earthly kingdom. We must not deny that or deny its existence. Exhibit A is Paul, about three times in the book of Acts, where he takes full advantage of his earthly citizenship in chapter 16 in Philippi, when they were unjustly arrested and Unjustly treated, he says, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison. Now do they thrust us out privately? Nay, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. And you're familiar, of course, with these passages, but let me just remind you of them. In chapter 22, and verse 25 is Paul is about to be beaten by the Roman guard there in Jerusalem. And they bound him up, 
for whipping, Paul said to the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? Paul was quick to use his Roman citizenship to his advantage when he had to. On the other hand, he says in one place, if I've done anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. And finally, as uh, Festus and Agrippa hear Paul's, I'm sorry, it's just Festus at this occasion, before Agrippa comes into the picture, Paul appeals his case to the highest court in the empire. Yes, this is where he says it. If I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof they accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them, unto the Jews and and their system of justice. I appeal unto Caesar. And so... Believers have dual citizenship. We're citizens of an earthly realm as well as a heavenly realm. In the words of our Lord's prayer in John 17, we are in the world but not of the world. And this distinction of two kingdoms operating simultaneously, believers having membership in both and a duty to both, is, I believe, vital to our understanding and application of Romans 13, 1 through 7. So let me hasten to a close here. Let's make sure that we don't make the same mistake as the Jews of Jesus' day. Now, we're all familiar with the mistake of the Jews of Jesus' day. They were looking for a political savior and a political king. And we must not be looking for a political savior, not in the form of any earthly politician, nor in the person of our Lord Jesus himself. We must understand the spiritual nature of his kingdom. Unrealistic expectations, unbiblical and unrealistic expectations of his kingship on this earth before he comes again have led some to an earthly, temporal, political focus that is simply foreign to the New Testament. Until Christ comes again and brings a new heaven and new earth, we must expect to live in the midst of a crooked and perverse perverse nation or generation among whom we shine as lights in the world. Our message is the same as that of the early church. Be saved from this crooked generation. Our message has never been and is not to save this generation 
It's be saved from it. And so these are things, again, to keep in mind as we work our way through Romans 13. I want to close with just a few words here that I found especially helpful and good from John MacArthur. And I know that there are things that we would not agree with him on, even with regard to Romans 13, but I think he has some, some good words here. Looking at things from a New Testament perspective, Christ, he says, did not come to proclaim or establish a new social or moral order, but a new spiritual order, his church. He did not seek to make the old creation moral, but to make the new creation holy. The mission of the church is not to change society, although that is often a beneficial byproduct of faithful ministry and living. I mean, sometimes that happens when it does, thank God, but that's not the goal and the purpose. He says, the mission of the church, rather, is to worship and serve the Lord and bring others to saving faith in Him. He says, we make a mistake when, quote, the focus is shifted from the call to build the spiritual kingdom through the gospel to efforts to moralize culture, trying to change society from the outside rather than individuals from the inside. We are to be the conscience of the nation through faithful preaching, and godly living. Using legislation, adjudication, or intimidation to achieve a superficial, temporal, Christian morality. And that's in quotation marks, Christian morality. What some today would call Christendom. Is not our calling and has no eternal value, end quote. Actually, those are several quotes from several pages. So I would just summarize it this way. As Christians and as a church, our focus is not on promoting common grace but proclaiming saving grace. And as saving grace operates, common grace elevates. Well, we've taken plenty of time here. May the Lord help us and guide us through the various challenges here in Romans 13.